Hello and welcome to this download from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller and my guest today is historian Roger Crowley. Roger has followed up his first highly acclaimed book on the last great siege of Constantinople in 1453 with Empires of the Sea. The new book tells the action-packed story of the battle for the control of the Mediterranean between the Ottoman Empire and Christian forces in the 16th century. We came on to talk about the clash of civilizations, but first I wanted to know how his second book followed on from his first. The first book that I wrote was about the fall of Constantinople and was really about the the appearance of the Ottoman Empire within uh, the world of the Mediterranean basin. It obviously finishes with Constantinople falling and on the 29th of May 1453, Mehmet the Conqueror climbed onto the roof of the great mother church of uh, Byzantium, Hagia Sophia, and looked out over the, over the city. And what he would have seen, apart from the devastation of his army, if he looked to the west, he would have seen the sea. And the sea was a new frontier for the Ottomans. They were uh, a people from the heart of Central Asia. They had no um, maritime background, but it was uh, a frontier that they were going to have to tackle at some point or another. This really was a starting point of my th- of my following the journey of the Ottomans onwards from Constantinople. In one direction, it went into the heart of Europe, to Vienna, but in another direction, it went into the Mediterranean basin. The the Ottomans are very fast learners. They acquired ships, they acquired shipwrights, and they started to build fleets. Empires of the Sea follows this story into the 16th century when they start to expand outwards into the Mediterranean basin and to take on the remains of uh, what might have been the the Christian um, strongholds in the eastern Mediterranean with very large fleets. And it's following that story into the Mediterranean basin that I was interested in doing. Quite apart from the fact there's a there's a wonderful wealth of stories there to um, explore, you also have a personal connection with both the Mediterranean and with um, seafaring. Can you say a bit about that? Yeah, I do, actually. I, I've been obsessed by the Mediterranean since I was nine. Um, my dad was in, uh, in the Navy. He'd been in the Navy in the Second World War, and he was, in the, he was stationed in Malta in the early 1960s. And I used to go out as a, as, as a child, and I was fascinated by somewhere that was warm, but I was also fascinated by the history and the prehistory of Malta. And this has really stayed with me ever since. I've always felt that, you know, along with many people from Northern Europe, that there was something enormously beguiling about the Mediterranean basin. After I left university, I went to work in Istanbul for a while. And so this has remained as a kind of, both the maritime thing and the Mediterranean thing, as a kind of low-level obsession, which I haven't been able to shake off. So you mentioned the Ottomans at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Who are the forces of of Christendom counterposed uh, against them at the other end? The the counterbalance of the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century is the Habsburg Empire scattered across Europe from the Netherlands to North Africa. And particularly in Spain, Charles V became king of uh, Spain, what was effectively Spain, in 1517. And Charles V and Suleiman the Magnificent, who was um, the Ottoman Sultan in uh, 1520, these two men who had symbiotic sort of imperial ambitions bestrode the European scene for 40 years. Their contests sort of ranged from the gates of Vienna to the gates of Gibraltar, but in the middle of that period, between about 1520 and 1580, 
they fought uh, viciously for control of, of the Mediterranean. It was the epicenter of what was considered to be a world war between the two great superpowers of the age. And it was felt that they were actually fighting a world war. There was a lot of prophecy about the end of the world, uh, about there being one universal monarch, and it was very much tied up in, in the dynamic personality of these two extraordinary individuals. And it was very much felt as a clash of civilizations. That's a phrase that's bandied about rather freely now. But in, in those days, they felt their civilization was really at stake. Absolutely, on both sides. I mean, they were both defenders of their faiths. Suleiman, obviously, of the Islamic world. They had uh, guardianship of the holy places of, of Mecca and the Arabian Peninsula. Charles V was the Holy Roman Emperor, a position he got through bribery. But he was also the Catholic king and secular leader of the, of the Christian world with a mission to expand Christianity. His personal motto, uh, which was on sails of his ships, it simply had the one word further on it and, and expansion, both imperial and religious expansion, was the aim of both these men. Charles wanted to capture Istanbul, Constantinople, Suleiman wanted to capture Rome. And so they were kind of mirror images of each other during that period. Now, there are two particular flashpoints or crisis points in the course of your narrative. And the first of those is the Ottoman siege of Malta. Now, you just said that Rome was kind of the ultimate price. So what was the importance of Malta for the Turks? There were two reasons, really, why Malta was important for the Turks. Firstly, the Knights of St. John, who held Malta on behalf of Charles V, were extremely annoying they, they were uh, what you might call Christian corsairs, Christian pirates. They spent a great deal of time raiding Ottoman sh- uh, shipping lines in the eastern Mediterranean. So Suleiman had a particular personal interest in wiping them out. But also, strategically, Malta really is, is the centre of the sea in the middle of the world. It is the midway point. And strategically, it has always been a kind of liminal position. It had been held by the Arabs in, in earlier times. And it was very much of a stepping stone into Europe. And so for Suleiman, really, it was the launch pad for a potential assault on Italy. And taking it was an extremely strategic uh, decision for him. In your incredibly vivid narrative of the siege of Malta, there's this great force of, of Turks besieging the island. And... Jean de la Vallette, who's in charge of the, 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 the knights on Malta, repeatedly asks for relief. And relief is incredibly slow in coming. And I wondered, why, can you say why relief, given that this was a strategic point, was so long in coming? It is an extraordinary thing, really, because it's only 70 miles from Sicily and they could hear the guns on, on Malta uh, from Sicily. The answer lies in Philip II of Spain, who was king after um, Charles V. Philip the Prudent was um, an extremely cautious man. He'd seen his, one of his fleets wiped out on the, on the shores of North Africa. Galley fleets were very expensive to build, and he was very, very wary of losing another fleet. He was quite prepared, actually, to lose Malta. The other side of it was that Christian, the Christendom was, was not in any way united. Venetians actually hated the Knights of St. John, who they called Corsairs with Crosses. Venetians hated Philip and vice versa. So there was no pan-Christian initiative. It was very difficult to organise any unified uh, Christian defence or, or relief of Malta. Everything was very fragmented as far as, as, far as Christian Europe was concerned. So what does explain the fact that the the knights did manage to withstand those four months and the Turks eventually embarked and and disappeared? 
There are a number of factors. They were at the end of their of their operational limit. Malta is extremely barren if you've ever been to Malta. It offers nothing, really. There's no wood, there's no water. They had to take everything with them. Uh, Maltese population, who they thought might might defect to them, stuck by the knights uh, to a man. They would have died to the last uh, child in defence of their stony little fields. The knights were extremely good at defending fortified places. They'd had several hundred years of, of hunkering down behind bastions and and being quite often massacred by um, forces of Islam. But they were very, very good at defending fortified places. And although the, they, numerically the numbers are very asymmetrical, 20,000, maybe 25,000 Ottomans and maybe five, 8,000 Christian forces, given the uh, fortifications that they had, it was uh, they were a crack, uh, tough nut to crack. And in the end, they were relieved from Sicily and uh, the Ottomans had to pull back. I mentioned already that your narrative is extremely vivid and and colourful. And I wondered, what kind of sources do you have to draw on in order to construct it? I imagine there are, you have to be really careful with with trusting a lot of these sources, given the, the sort of polarisation of positions, the sort of ideological lens through which these events are seen. It is interesting, actually. I think the history of, of the 16th century and the book that I've written is, is, is almost a hurrah for the invention of printing, actually compared with the fall of Constantinople in the, uh, in the last century, previous century, for which the sources are very minimal, the sources are huge for this. A vast amount of material was being produced, eyewitness accounts. They were producing broadsheets in, in Italy by the day as n- news leaked out of Malta. There were diaries written at the time. There are uh, quite a number of wonderful eyewitness accounts from the 16th century but the sources are asymmetrical. The Ottomans produce very, very little, and it's very tough to balance up the two sides. You get a vast amount of personal material from uh, the Christian side, you know, about individual fates uh, and events, and you tend to get lists from the Ottomans about how many bushels of wheat and sacks of gunpowder they sent over. I think a lot of Suleiman's uh, imperial records were, have actually been lost, but they didn't have this tradition of writing personal accounts. I think the transmission of history in, in, in Ottoman times is very much of an oral thing. So you have to try and reconstruct the Ottoman side by reading between the lines of the Christian accounts, some of which are very, very detailed about what the Ottomans did and what they said. There have been one or two things about Malta where they have retrieved some naval records, which are quite interesting. But it, it, it's hard. You have to work hard to try and maintain a sense of balance. So your book concludes in 1571 with the Battle of Lepanto, which the Turks are defeated by this alliance of, of Christian forces. Am I understanding it correctly that this really was the sort of the end of the Mediterranean as the centre of the world and after that those nations turned to other struggles, other priorities and no longer was the Mediterranean really the, the epicentre of the, the, the whole of civilization. It's symbolic of that decline, I think. What was realised at the Battle of Lepanto, although the Christians absolutely annihilated the Ottoman fleet, was that a maritime war was unwinnable given the resources available and both sides tacitly withdrew from the contest. They signed a treaty in 1580. But it was it was almost symbolic of some larger movement away from the Mediterranean. Things that had happened to change the balance of, of power. I mean, in 1500, uh, the Portuguese sailed round, round Africa and were starting to uh, source spices from the Orient directly. 
the maritime powers of Northern Europe, the entrepreneurial seamen of Holland and and England were starting to sail galleons, moving away from the old galley. And it, it, it symbolised the end, I suppose, of the old world as being the centre of a world and the start of a new a maritime-based ocean-going phase of imperial expansion. In that respect, the Battle of Lepanto was the last hurrah of that older civilization and that older way of fighting wars.